welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So if you've been with us for the past couple of months during what we call ordinary time, we have been walking through a series on finding true rest. And this Sunday, we will be putting that series to let rest. It'll be our last sermon in the series. And, and to mark off um, this final sermon in our series, um, my mind naturally went to Madonna, um, <laughs> the late '80s pop icon Madonna. Um, and you know, if you if you were alive during the late '80s and early '90s, um, she was pretty much everywhere. I mean, she was putting out hit after hit after hit. And started getting into movies and fashion. And I mean, she was, she was basically kind of like a pop mogul and was doing pretty much everything. And, and she's still keeping going. Some questionable decisions with plastic surgery, I've noticed. But other than that, like she's still keeping her brand going. But I, I was reading and there's a famous quote of hers whenever she was at the height of her fame and popularity talking about how she can keep up with everything going on. And she said, well, I'll rest when I'm dead. I'm hungry and life is short. It was Madonna kind of grabbing from a common phrase or statement that we hear frequently, or maybe not as frequently anymore, but this idea of I'll rest when I'm dead or I'll sleep when I'm dead number of bands and musicians have utilized that topic for songs and albums. The Cure had a song, Sleep When I'm Dead. Bon Jovi had a song, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. And if Bon Jovi says it, you know it's true. But it's a phrase that is interesting to me. I'll rest when I'm dead. I mean, we say that kind of carrying Madonna's mentality that life is short and I got to get mine. I got to make things happen. I got things I got to do. I'm important. I've got all of this going on and I don't have time for rest because I only have this short period of time to make something significant happen, to make my money, to do what I need to do. And then I'll have plenty of time to rest when I'm dead. What I think is interesting is without Madonna knowing it, I think she's completely right. Well, not completely. Mostly right. Because as Christians, I think one of the reasons why we do not find the rest that is promised to us in Christ is because we forget that we've already died. See, Paul, in our epistle, writes 
to the Roman church. And there's a lot of different occasions and reasons for writing this letter. But one of the occasions we know is that there was division and competition amongst those within the church. There was a level of Jew Gentile, but there was also a superior and inferior Christian. The strong and the weak of faith division. And as Paul lays out this, this kind of leveling effect of the gospel of grace, it's interesting that he ends up giving multiple chapters of focus at the heart of his letter to reminding the church of their baptism. And mind you, his speaking of baptism is not trying to get people to get baptized this epistle was to the church, those who were baptized. Reminding them of this reality of baptism that was uniting them to Christ's death and uniting them to Christ's resurrection. And so for in this final sermon in our series on finding true rest, I want to look at the idea of being united to Christ's death. And how being united to Christ in baptism, there's a death to self, self, a death to sin, and a death to death. And look at how, through this death, we can walk in new life, a life of true rest. So first, just to start off in our epistle reading in Romans 6, 3 through 4, Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's just interesting to me that in the context, like I mentioned, that in the midst of all that is happening within the church and the divisions and the competition, that Paul sees fit to evangelize the saints by drawing them back to their baptism. That this sacrament of entry into Christ's church and what it represents is not a st- just a starting point that we move beyond, but a reality that preaches the gospel to us over and over and over again. And I bring this up, too, in, in excitement because next Sunday we will be celebrating a baptism. And as we celebrate the baptism of Anna, we will be all reminded of our baptism. Being evangelized through it. And if you notice, there's the font at the doorway. It has baptismal water in it. If you've ever attended a a, a Roman church, there is almost always a font with a baptismal water. We don't usually have one. Most Anglican in in Episcopal-type churches do. But it actually comes from a very ancient practice. A lot of the oldest churches that we find had baptismal fonts at the entrance of the door. 
And the symbolism and meaning of it is a reminder of your own baptism as we enter into worship because it is through the washing of Christ that we are made clean that we might then come and come before the throne of God. That we might receive from him. It's not magical, it's a reminder of our baptism. And so whenever you take the water and put it upon yourself, it's a reminder of the baptism that you had received. It's a means, as Paul had used, to evangelize us. And in that reminder of our baptism, we see that Paul tells us that in our baptism, we are united to Christ's death and his resurrection, and in that, we die to our old self. In 6.5, through the beginning of 6.6, 6, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. So the first point in finding true rest in this idea of being united to Christ in death, that we have already died, is the idea of dying to self. And if you watch documentaries like I do, I like seeing different documentaries about rock bands and about historical figures and stuff like that. Or you watch films. You'll see that there's usually a theme a lot of times that's, that, 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 that character or the, the individual that we look up to or, or, or are intrigued by because they crashed and burned are haunted by their past. Usually are, are, are driven towards great achievement because of something that they once were and so they are frantically trying to prove themselves to be otherwise or... They succumb to it. And they go down in horrible tragedy. But the thing is, is all of us who have been born into this reality of a sinful and broken world and all who have fallen ourselves into sin, the consequences of sin from childhood till now, are ingrained in our psyche. And we carry it with us. Whether it is a brokenness that we had caused or a brokenness that we had received. It's amazing, I think of, 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 of my, my boys, and I think of Colleen as a middle school teacher, and I hear her talk about the things going on. And I think one thing is humorous to me, because I watch all of the awkward weirdness that is happening in middle school social dynamics, and I realize that all they are doing within their little society is the very same thing that we're doing right now. We're just more sophisticated as we get older, but still playing the same games. And in that, whenever you see that, even from that young age, so much of what has happened and what is done can carry with you for so long. That even in your 40s, you can still be trying to not be or run from the idea that you're that failure, disappointment, or screw up. Or how many times I know I've, I've, I've counseled those who are dealing with addiction or those who have been caught in adultery. 
And it's one thing to be dealing with the sin, but what I find is usually what's most crushing for those individuals is that all, is whenever they don't say that they are struggling with addiction, but they know that they are an addict and that's just who they are. And even if they've been clean, they are haunted by that. Or they have the scarlet letter placed upon them. And that marks their identity. I was talking to many, many years back to, to, to a, a, um, a therapist who's written a number of books. And I was talking with him and he, and he said one of the challenges that he's found is those who themselves have been harmed by sin is not just dealing with the pain of being harmed or victimized by the sin, but allowing that then to become who they are. Remember him saying is one of the biggest challenges is to move from one who's been victimized or to move from one whose identity and position in the world is victim to one who has merely been victimized. See, the thing is, is it's hard to rest when you're either constantly fighting coming to that self that has been built up in a world of sin or whenever you're frantically trying to make atonement for that past self. But Paul says that In our baptism, we have been united to Christ in his death. That the old self has died. Whatever it is, is no longer you. Whatever it is has been crucified with Christ and atonement has been made. The attitudes, the responses, the pursuits... The dreams and aspirations to try to make up for whatever it might be, all of those things have been taken with Christ to Golgotha. And so the first point is when there's lack of rest or lack of sleep because of the haunting thoughts and situations that bring up that old self. And you know what it is. Whenever I had somebody who was really wise shares, always be attuned to those statements, those people, those situations that unnecessarily cause a flush of anxiety or anger. Because it's usually pricking at something of the old self that hasn't died. Whereas a friend of mine who wrote a modern translation of Francois Fenelon's letters, who was a bishop in the 1600s, used the analogy of God working on us as a surgeon, trying to cut away to heal us. He says, whenever a surgeon's knife hits something that is dead, it doesn't, the person doesn't flinch. It's only when there's something still alive in there. And so those things that cause us to pull back and flinch are usually those things that have not yet fully been put to death by Christ on the cross. But whenever those flinches happen, it 
It's in those times that we hear, we should hear Paul's voice. Remember your baptism. That you, the old you, the, sin, the, the body of sin has been died, has died and crucified with Christ. And secondly, we have died to sin. In 6.6 6 we say, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. And then in 10, he says, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is interesting because this plays into the context of why he's actually getting into baptism and talking about the, the, the passage that we read here today. The context leading into what we have in our bulletins in Romans 5, 26 and through 6, 2, he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I love the Paul, Pauline, by no means statements. Because they're usually in the context where he is pushing and being unashamed of the radical and exhaustive nature of the gospel of grace. But then in that knows that somebody is going to try to misunderstand him and twist it. So then he, he, he hits the misunderstanding before the person could even begin to twist his scriptures. And it often doesn't work because we still end up twisting what he says. But in this passage, Paul is laying out the fullness of God's grace and saying that there's no sin that God's grace cannot cover, that that he covers all sin to the highest extreme. And that even if our sins get grander, God's grace will abound that much more. There is no limit to grace. But he says... A quick reminder that grace does not free us to sin, it frees us from sin. But what's interesting is after making that statement and combating the possible misunderstanding that, that, that the, the growth of grace because of the amount of sin that it will cover all sins would mean that then we are free to sin that much more so grace will abound, he says, by no means, but then he doesn't respond to counter that by going to law. of reward and punishment to kind of rein things in. No, he goes to a reminder of baptism. Our salvation by grace. By grace, we've been united to Christ, sharing in his life and resurrection. And in that, it means that sin and its power has been killed with Christ on the cross. Grace is freeing us from sin because it's 
removing the fangs of sin and killing sin. And I also say, what we often do is don't respond like Paul. And throughout much of the church's history, our response to this radical idea of grace is we've got to keep people in line. So we've got to create a new law of reward and punishment. So you have grace, but then you need to have some other reason to keep people in line. Because if it's all grace, then what keeps people from going on sinning? And just as an aside, Jesus didn't need to die to free you to sin. We've been free to sin since the garden. Nobody's stopping us. We need Jesus to die that in, so that in spite of our sin, we might return to God. And we might be freed from that sin. But he uses this idea of sin, and he talks about it in this imagery of slavery, which Paul does frequently. That sin is a, an exhausting type taskmaster. And I think there's two ways in which, which sin controls us and in two ways we're freed by sin being put to death upon the cross. First, there's the idea of our desire for sin, which is a desire that's rooted in us from the beginning. And it's a desire that's not necessarily tied to a particular act or action, but we see in the Genesis account that our desire for sin is ultimately desire for autonomy and self-rule. And no matter how much we like to think that we are rational creatures, we are primarily effectual creatures. We are controlled by our desires. What we long for. What we want most. And that's where it's interesting because in Scripture, slavery of sin is also countered by imagery of us being called slaves of Christ. We temper it a lot of times in our translations to be bondservants, but it's the same word. That we are freed from our bondage to sin, that it is put to death because our desire for autonomy and rebellion is replaced with a greater affection. Scripture calls it regeneration for Christ. And are driven by a desire for that. The other aspect of sin is the debt of sin that we are freed from. It's interesting, when we think of slavery, we often think of slavery with regard to our, 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 our kind of more recent manifestations of it. Imperial slavery. In the first century, it was different. And a lot of times people talk about first century slavery in a way that almost makes it seem like it was like a decent gig. It wasn't. Slavery is always terrible. Um, and for a lot of people, it was horrible. But one thing that was different in first century slavery is you had different reasons for it. A lot of times because of losing battle or something else. But one of the frequent ways, means of slavery, was that if somebody had a debt or had a family debt in which they couldn't repay that debt, then they would sell themselves into slavery and give the, their life to that person so that then they can relinquish their family or whatever from the debt that they had. And I think that that is a lot of ways what Paul has in mind when he talks about the slavery of sin. Because he uses the language of slavery of sin usually in the same context of him talking about a debt being paid. 
And it's exhausting to try to play Jesus to cover our sins and make atonement and to pay off the debt. He says, if we are in Christ, we have died to sin and its slavery has been destroyed. That that bondage that carries us and drives us is removed. I I like this statement, this quote from, from Martin Luther, not because I would ever say it, and I don't know if I completely agree with it, but I like it because it's Luther and it challenge, it's him just using extremes. But Luther, in a letter to a fellow reformer, Melanchthon, wrote to Melanchthon, he said, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. I think we have rest whenever we realize that our sin has been placed upon that cross. That it is dead that the debt has been paid. Because then in that, our affections are directed towards Christ so we no longer run after it and pursue it. And when we find ourselves like St. Paul doing what we do not want to do and cannot do the very thing that we wish we would do, we can turn to the gospel of Christ as revealed to us through our baptism and be reminded that that has been already nailed to the cross as well. And so we no longer need to hide or pretend. What I like about what Luther is speaking of here is he's making a statement about the temptation and mentality to minimize our sinfulness by trying to whitewash ourselves over like modern day Pharisees to appear as if we are better than we actually are. Running around masquerading and having these general vague confessions because we're afraid to be naked before our God let alone each other. He says, trust in the gospel so radically that even in your sinfulness and brokenness, it can be exposed. And so in that rhythm of confession and absolution and reminder of our baptism, we can have rest And knowing that united to Christ, our sin is dead. And finally, we have rest from the fear of death. We have died to death. In 6, 8 through 9, Paul writes, But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
See, in Christ's crucifixion, Scripture tells us that our sin, our debt, our past life, all of those things have been placed upon the cross and have, have been put to death. It's the idea of substitution. But it also says that death itself has been destroyed. So Scripture says, death is where is thy victory, O death, where is thy sting? Christ has defeated the final enemy, death. But here's the problem is, as we think about this idea of, of, of death being destroyed. It's control over us, removed. Whenever I search through history, I find an interesting fact. Christians have the exact same track record regarding death as everybody else. We die at the exact same percentage rate as the rest of society. So what's it getting at? I think it's important to understand the biblical concept of death compared to ours. In Genesis, whenever Adam and Eve fell, it says in, in the actual Hebrew that in dying you will surely die. Scripture speaks of a second death. It's because death in the Hebrew and, 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 and the biblical mindset is not the, the modern Western, purely the end cessation of biological life. Death is always tied to separation. And so physical death is separation of soul and body. But the second death, the in dying you will surely die, is separation of the self from the true source of life, which is God. And I think we get this because the hardest thing, no matter what else is going on, the hardest thing about the death of a loved one is knowing you're separated from them. Knowing that you are apart. See, being united to Christ in his death, dying with him, knowing that we have already then died and will not face death, means that we won't face a death like his. And that doesn't mean crucifixion because tons of Christians have been crucified. More brutally and horrifically than Christ was. Now we're all going to face death, some of us a horrific one. But we will never experience true death. Separation from the Father. And we, in our death, will not have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we realize that we have already died in Christ and have been raised in him, that ultimate death, that permanent separation from God, that separation that is the greatest of all fears, Realize that it has been destroyed, and then we can rest in peace even in the face of death that is surrounding us. We can have rest in a world of death. To close this out, I love. There's a play, it's really obscure, 
from 1925 by a playwright and author named Eugene O'Neill called Lazarus Laughed. Never seen the play. I don't know if it's any good. I've read much of it. It's a really interesting imaginative concept. The play is all about the life of Lazarus after Jesus. You know, Lazarus, who Jesus brought back from the dead during his earthly ministry. And as the play goes on, Lazarus is just filled with joy and laughter. And anybody who comes around him cannot escape the joy and laughter. And and he's always having his home open and they are resting and feasting. And he's just filled with great joy. And even as bad things happen to him, it just says that Lazarus laughed. And this angered the Romans because the power that the Romans had over the people was the threat of death. And so they threatened Lazarus. And eventually he was brought before Emperor Tiberius, had his wife killed. And Tiberius looked at Lazarus and says, Why do you not fear me? Do you not know that I have the power to kill you? And in the play, he looks at him and says, Emperor Tiberius, do you not know? Haven't you heard? I've already died once. And Christ has conquered death. There is no such thing as death. There is only life and life abundantly. And then it says, Lazarus laughed. I love that. Because even though his imagination, Lazarus, I think maybe knows a little bit better what is just as true for you and I. We can laugh and we can rest because in Christ we have already died. And then united to him in a resurrection like this. As we read last week, Paul in Colossians says this. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My brothers and sisters, as Madonna said, we can rest when we are dead. And as Paul has said, we have died with Christ in baptism and so are united to him in his resurrection. We have a new life, an abundant life. A life free from the slavery, anxiety, and fear that marks our pre-death life. Because our life is not our own. It is now Christ as he lives in and through us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary, carrying great burdens, and he will give us rest. Because when we come to him, we are yoked to him, 
removing the crushing yoke of justification and trying to be our own gods. And we receive a yoke of baptism in which we are united to him in his death, a death that frees us and liberates us so that we might live in restful peace, living in the power of his resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the